1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal peace, excuse me, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, good morning, guys. Thank you so much uh, for welcoming me and my family. Y'all have been very nice. Everyone I've met been very nice. So thank you guys so much. Um, before we get into the word, let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And it is precisely to that end that we are gathered this morning, that millions of church families are gathered right now to praise your name. I thank you that your people are so united that my family and I can worship with any local gathering of believers, even one that is in our home and still feel at home. And I do pray this morning for Ridgewood Church, Father, where we come from. And I pray uh, just for my dear brother Nick, who is preaching right now there. I pray, God, that you would convict and save and sanctify your people through the preaching of your word. And as we are about to continue to worship through preaching, I pray that you would do the same here, that you would convict, save, and sanctify your people. Amen. All right, so have you guys ever found yourself in what we could call like an inhospitable environment? Like you just don't, you don't quite feel welcomed where you're at. Whatever that may be. So for me, for example, I'm like, I bleed garnet and black. I'm a Gamecock fan. All right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> November 26th was a good day. Amen. Um, but I live like a mile from Clemson, okay? From Clemson University. All right? I, I'm often not welcome where I go there, okay? I married into a Clemson family and they've been gracious, but I'm often not welcome there. Um, and maybe you've experienced that. We even have a, we have a kid in our church. Um, their family's Clemson fans, like Die Hard, and he's in our community group. And one night I was doing childcare for our community group, and, and you know I was asking him just kind of basic theology questions. You know, who is Jesus? How are we saved? All that stuff. And and he's he was three at the time, and uh, he was giving me good answers, and they were all right. And then he looked at me and he said, he said, but you're not going to be in heaven because you're a Gamecock fan. <laughs> And it says, you know, what he says goes, I guess. You know, I don't know. But, but there just seems to be, if we kind of broaden the scope a little bit, there, there kind of seems to be a level of increased intolerance for Christians in the world today. It seems like, I mean, yeah, I know, like, it's all, uh, the world's always hated Christ and always hated Christians. And we know and are aware of, of regions of the world around us where persecution is extremely heightened. And we're thankful that that's not here but even here, it feels like there just seems to be a, a bit of increased inhospitality towards Christians, a bit of increased intolerance. And you see this either in the workforce or via media and whatever, whatever medium it is. Do you feel that way? Don't, don't you see what I'm talking about? 
Well, today, in, as we look at 1 Peter 2, um, Peter's actually addressing a group, a gathering of Jewish Christians that's more closely related to us. They're, they're, they're suffering a level of what you could call persecution to some degree, even though it's not imminent threat of life or death or anything like that. Um, but they're, they're facing this kind of social ostracizing from, from the groups around them, from the societies around them, because of, precisely because of, of what they believe. Um, and we might even say that it's a letter to Christians living in an inhospitable environment, an environment that just isn't totally um, welcoming of them. And, and perhaps even they had this issue to a greater degree than we do because they lived in such historical proximity to the resurrection of Christ. And just two decades ago or so, they'd just seen and heard and, and proclaimed that Christ was raised from the dead and that he had all authority and rule and dominion and power over all the nations. And that here they find themselves in an environment that isn't very doesn't really look like Christ is reigning here. It doesn't really look like Christ is ruling here. But we just heard that he is ruling, but it doesn't really look like he's ruling here. Um, and so perhaps them, even more than us, would ask that question, well, what are we to do here? We know and, and believe and have been told that Christ is ruling and reigning and that he's Lord, but we don't find ourselves in a place where that really seems to be the case. So what are we to do then as the people of God? Well, let's look at the text this morning, verse 9. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We'll stop there. The question that we have to get at this moment, the question we're trying to answer this this morning is, given what the audience of this letter is experiencing, this kind of ostracization, I tried to practice that word, that's a tough one, but this just level of like just social unwelcome, like intolerant, Peter is writing a letter to directly address that issue and then encourage the church in that regard to do something. And the question is, well, what is that? And what would he have for us? And So I think the first thing that we see in this text is that Peter tells us and tells his audience that God has a history of redeeming his people from darkness. He has a history of redeeming his people from darkness. This language, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, this is borrowing language from the book of Exodus. And this is specifically Exodus language. And it's, in fact, the audience that Peter's writing to is an audience of Jewish Christians who would have known very well, as soon as they read or heard these words, they would have known exactly what Peter was talking about. We might miss it, but they wouldn't have. It's Exodus language, and and they're reminded in this moment, way back when, the people of God found themselves at one point in time enslaved to this oppressive, tyrannical leader, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And for 400 years, they cried out to God for rescue. And in many ways, this is the exact situation that Peter's audience finds themselves in. It's in many ways where we find ourselves enslaved to a society that isn't exactly welcoming of us, that doesn't really tolerate us, and certainly doesn't want us to spread and grow, right? And the scriptures tell us, back in Exodus, that God heard the cries of his people, and that he remembered the promises that he made to them, and that he rescued them. But I think Peter's getting at something a little bit bigger here. It's not just true that God redeems his people from physical, temporal here and now, outside oppression and outside suffering and persecution. That's true. That is true. 
But I don't think what Peter's getting at here, I don't think what he's saying is declaring a promise that, yes, God will absolutely remove you from the situation you're in that, you, that, that is intolerant to you. But I think a bigger portion of what he's getting at here is that God also redeems his people from sin, from inner darkness, right? And borrowing language from the book of Hosea, this is, this is where he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a direct quotation from the book of Hosea, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And borrowing that language, he reminds his readers, and he reminds us even, you are a chosen people redeemed by God. You've been, you've been set free from your sin. And the question becomes, why is that important? We know why that's important eternally. We, we get that. But to a people specifically facing this external uh, pressure, if you will, from the society around them, very much similar to where we find ourselves today, why would it be important that Peter draw the attention not on the fact that God's justice is going to rule and reign over their oppressors in any way, but specifically he gets at, you've been redeemed by God in Christ and you've been set free from your sin. Why might that be the point of encouragement that Peter's getting at here? I think, number one, it's important to Peter that he reminds them and, and us that of their identity as God's people. One, one commentator put it this way, and I love this. He said, quote, In order to bear up under the world's rejection, the saints must be secure in their sense of divine election. I think that's exactly what Peter's getting at here. The world may be rejecting you. The world may not welcome you. The world may not tolerate you, and that's okay. Be secure in your sense of your divine election. And we know that that in it of itself has eternal significance. We understand that there's an eternal uh, effect that that has on us, which perhaps provides a level of encouragement and comfort and, and perseverance in, in a, a temporary time. But I think, second, Peter is reminding them and us that we have been eternally redeemed and are united with God in Christ. And I think that's important because Paul actually gets at this a little bit in Romans chapter 8. I'm going I'm to read from Romans chapter 8. I don't, know if, I don't think it would be on screen, but I'll read from it. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God and Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that's exactly what Peter's trying to get at here. It's important to remind this, this local congregation, this local gathering of people who perhaps is facing a level of social pressure around them, it's important to remind them of who they are rooted in the history of God's people, chosen and redeemed by him in Christ, so that they can then be reminded there's nothing that can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And in fact, the circumstances that surround them are not necessarily indicative of their relationship and standing before God. That's true for us as well. Now, I love this sweet little detail that, that Peter includes us here. He says that we are people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
And that is exactly why we gather. To what, to, Peter, to what end have we been redeemed? To what end has God set us free? To what end do we gather here even this morning? And it's to proclaim his excellencies. The excellencies of him who've called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And now that Peter has encouraged his audience by reminding them of who they are as God's chosen people and that they've been eternally redeemed by God in Christ, he offers them a sort of a warning. It's kind of weird, but he offers them a warning. Let's keep reading. Verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Really quick, that sojourners and exiles language. Sojourners is just a word that means that as a people, your time is temporary. Your time here is temporary. That was true for them, it's true for us. Our time in a fallen, unredeemed world is temporary. We long and await for an eternal, glorified world. And then exiles, that's language that specifically says, well, your citizenship is not here. You're not actually a citizen of this fallen, unredeemed world. Your citizenship is elsewhere as well. So he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, keeping in mind, Peter is specifically aimed at encouraging this body of believers to persevere and stand firm in the midst of what may be some persecution. And the second point he gets at here is interesting. Peter tells them and tells us that unrepentant sin in the body is actually a greater threat to the church than persecution. There's a warning implied in here. He's aware of and understands that they're in a bit of an uncomfortable situation. He's aware of and understands that they find themselves in a place where they may not be welcome or tolerated. And he's aware that they are concerned about that, as many of us may be even where we are at today. But he understands that there's actually a greater threat that if we neglect greater destruction is brought upon the church, and that's unrepentant sin within the body. When I was in high school, I, uh, I was a sophomore, and I sprained my MCL. Okay, I was playing football, and I sprained my MCL. Um, it was a grade two sprain, if anybody knows, how, you know, grade one, two, three, it was grade two. And um, it was supposed to be, like, out for, I don't know, four weeks or something like that, four to six weeks, something like that. It was at the tail end of football season, and basketball was coming up, and I was always a basketball guy. That was my sport, so that's what I looked most forward to. And um, so it was, it was tail end of football season, and I remember we were having a practice. Of course, I'm in the brace. I've got, like, it's, like, the size of my leg. And um, I was in the brace, and I was supposed to not be doing anything um, because if I were to do something and injure myself even more, it would set back my recovery. Um, and a couple guys on the team were, like, throwing the football to warm up, and I was like, my knee hasn't hurt in a little while. I think I'll be okay. And so I'll, you know, I get up and I start throwing and I go to jump up and catch one and I come right down on the knee. And boy, it hurt. And it was like another two to three weeks added to my recovery, right? And it's like, but we, we all have that like tendency and that inclination within us to, be, to determine for ourselves what we think is actually better than what more higher, higher standards of authority might say is, 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 is good for us. We have a tendency to do that. And then in so doing, actually destroy ourselves. We have a tendency to do that. And this has actually been true of God's people throughout all of history. This this is a book that's full of Old Testament imagery and and, and full of allusions to the Old Testament, and that's intentional. Because I think Peter 
wants the, the audience to which he's writing, and then by implication us today, to, to, to see ourselves and identify ourselves with the covenant people of God throughout all time. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that large portions, if not all, of, God's, of the judgment of God brought upon his own people were due to their own negligence and their own uh, inclination towards determining for themselves what they thought was good. This is the language of the Old Testament. They, they, I mean, it's all over. They, they did what was right in their own eyes. It's all over. They actually determined for themselves what they thought was best, and in doing so, brought upon destruction and death and judgment. This is even true in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. There's, a, there's two people, if you're familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, this continues throughout the New Testament where two people within the, the local gathering, the church community of God, the church, are actually struck down on the spot, killed on the spot, because they lied about the amount of money that they donated to the church to meet some, some physical needs. So sin has always been, unrepentant sin, hidden sin, has always been a greater threat to the people, to the church of God, than persecution has. And I think that's exactly what Peter's getting at here. It's, it's interesting that his, his encouragement to, the, to his church body that he's writing to is not, hey, listen, I know that you find yourselves in trying times, and I know that you've got people around you in your community and society that don't welcome you, that don't tolerate you, but take heart, God's justice will rule and reign over them. That's not what he says. He says, number one, remember who you are as God's chosen people. And number two, there's a greater issue that you need to deal with, and that's unrepentant sin in your body. Because that is what's going to destroy you, not whatever comes from outside. Sin has always been a greater threat to God's people than persecution. So then the question for us this morning is, well, okay, what would be Peter's encouragement to us Christians here today as sojourners and exiles in an, in an intolerant land, as sojourners and exiles in a land that's not our own, to which we don't belong, what would he have for us? What would he say to us? What would he say to Infinity Church this morning? I think, number one, he would want us to be reminded that we are chosen people of God, redeemed from our sin in Christ. That's important. It's important that we be rooted in that, that that be our foundation Romans 8, Paul tells us uh, that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified in him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The reason why it's important that we understand who we are in Christ and that we are redeemed in Christ is because there's actually sort of a correlation between the suffering that we endure here and now in the name of Christ and the, the glorification that we will receive when he returns. There's actually a connection there. Just as we suffer with Christ, so too we will, we will be raised and glorified with Christ. So number one, we are a chosen people of God, redeemed from our sin in Christ. Number two, and this is important, perhaps most important, sin desires nothing but the destruction of God's people. And holiness is our greatest counterattack. Sin desires nothing but to destroy this family, and holiness is your greatest line of defense. He says, I urge you, even in the midst of outside pressures and, and, and external situations that are, you know, are intolerant to view, even in the midst of all of that, he says, I urge you, look inward, Deal with what's inside the body. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
real quick, flesh here, that word flesh is just a word that, refer, it does, it's not physicalness necessarily, but it's a word that refers to our, what we could call our Adamic nature, or the nature that we have in Adam. And Adam, uh, Adam in his fall, then inherited to all of us a nature that is bent towards and um, desires nothing but fallenness and, and destruction. And so he says, abstain from the passions of that nature which you possess. And though we're redeemed, though we're redeemed, we find ourselves in a, in, a, in a location within redemptive history in which Christ has come once and not yet come again. And so we're in the middle of this, of the, of the two advents of Christ in which it's true we've been redeemed, but we're not yet fully redeemed. And so abstain from the passions of the flesh that belong to the old man, that belong to the nature of Adam, and wage war against your soul. Abstain from those things. And I think worth noting here as well is that this is a congregational command. This is a collective you. You, collective, plural. You, Infinity Church, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. It's not you as an individual, be on guard and, and don't worry about anybody else. It's you, take responsibility for the brothers and sisters that you've covenanted with here on a weekly basis. Take responsibility there and collectively wage war together against what seeks to destroy you. This is, this is why church discipline is necessary and important, and it's, it's hurtful and it's hard, but it's necessary. Because as a church, as a community, we, we need to wage war against that which seeks to destroy us. And then I think the third thing that Peter would have for us as Christians here in this land is that the best way to, quote-unquote, get back at our persecutors, or those in our lives, whether it be at work or wherever, who aren't totally tolerant of us. The best way to get back at those people is to live such holy and honorable lives that when God returns to judge the righteous and the wicked, the wicked will actually honor him for the redemption of his people. That's what Peter says here. He says, live honorably among the Gentiles so that upon the Lord's return, upon the day of visitation, they may glorify him for our good deeds. The best thing we can do, the best way to quote-unquote get back at or fight against those who are against us is to actually live holy. Live holy and honorable lives among them that they may see and honor God when he returns for our redemption. Now, it's not totally clear if, if that honoring is in and of itself salvation for those people or not. But at minimum, we can say, it's so that they may honor and glorify God when he returns. I think an implication of this point, sort of a practical implication of this point, is that in the world and in the unbelieving world that we find ourselves in, how we live is as important to our evangelism as what we preach. How we live is as important as what we preach. And this is actually really, really common throughout the New Testament. It's all over the place. Paul tells us in Ephesians, that, quote, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Titus, Paul commands us who have believed in God to, quote, devote ourselves to good works. And finally, James 2, he says, quote, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
And Peter here, in, second, or in First Peter rather, he is exhorting the people of God to live honorably, not only so that the world can't condemn us, but also so that the world might, by God's grace, come to faith in Christ. And that's true for, that's true for all of us. <laughs> Every one of us who've come to faith in Christ, it was because whether you were a young child at that time, it was because someone took initiative to live honorably and holy among your life, whether it be a parent and, and discipling you or not. Or if you're like me and you were older in life, it was because someone took notice of you and decided to live honorably and holy, and in so doing, influence you. And there's a warning here that the New Testament places upon the church. The, the New Testament as a whole, and what Peter's getting at here, is that a workless faith is as good as no faith at all. Ex- expressed faith in Christ without genuine obedience and genuine faithfulness is as good as a dead faith. All right? And so the question becomes, well, how might you be able to live out your faith? How might you be able to parallel the expression that you make that Christ is Lord with deeds in your life? And I think for a lot of us, this is hardest maybe in the workforce. I've, I've even noticed this where, in, in my job where I'm at, where I'm surrounded by people who either, one, don't, definitely don't believe, or two, say they do, but then it's like everything they say, I'm like, do you, do you though? Um, but maybe for you, maybe it's just that, it's that one coworker at work that just nobody else seems to like, and you probably don't like them either, and, that, and that's probably validated to some degree. But maybe, I've even experienced this at, at my job, maybe when everybody else is, is around and that person's not there and everybody kind of starts to ridicule that person. I mean, y'all know. Everybody starts to kind of talk about that person, ridicule that person. And there's a temptation to jump in and say, yeah, man, he, he did this and that really frustrated me. Maybe instead of doing that, you actually find something honorable about that person and speak highly of them. All right, that's just one small way in, in the unbelieving world that you can live honorably among those around you. Another way is in our marriages, husbands and wives. Now, I'm nine months into this thing, so. But (laughs) husbands and wives. (laughs) It's true, though, like, let's have such an unconditional commitment and love for each other that the secular world looks in and says, how? How? And to which we then proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. I'll speak for husbands here. Like, maybe this looks like doing the dishes and <laughs> doing the laundry. It's taken me time to voluntarily do those things. But maybe it looks like doing that. Something else I've been trying to do better is actually anticipating when I could serve her after I know she may have had a long day. Let's do that. Let's, let's, everything we do as Christians, let, our marriages must be different and distinct from those around us. Everything must be. And that's just one way. Another way, and I think this is, this is huge, as Christians in the church, one of the biggest ways that we can set ourselves apart from the world, from the, from the unbelieving world that we find ourselves in, is in how we view and treat children. I think this is huge. This is really big. Children are not a burden, but a blessing from the Lord, right? So may Infinity Church, may Ridgewood Church, where we are from, may the people of God be a people of just outstanding spiritual fathers, mothers, and aunts and uncles in the faith, 
right? All the little ones that I saw running around here earlier, like, may we all and all of you who gather here weekly bear up the responsibility and burden to disciple and love those children in the Lord. Amen? And finally, I think getting back at our evangelism here, may we treat, love, and serve the unbelieving world around us with a parallel urgency, or sorry, may we treat, love, and serve them around us the way that we treat, love, and serve them. May that parallel the urgency with which we preach the gospel. Because going back to it, it's not just what they need to hear. It's true that they're dead in sin, and it's true that they need Christ. That's true. And they need to know. That's true. But it's not just it. They also need to know that they're created in God's image. They also need to be treated as such. We need to love and serve them in such a way that reflects that. May all we do, whether it be in the workforce or in marriages or in, with children or in our evangelism or, or whatever situation you find yourselves in, may all we do be to the proclamation of his excellency, be to the praise of his name. So I have a few questions to ask you as a church as we come to a close. I sent you two. I added one more kind of last minute. Um, so this first one, though, which won't be on the screen, this is for the non-believer in the room. The non-believer in the room. My question would you be, do you belong to something that parallels the Christian church? Do you belong to something that is so united on an unshakable hope and salvation? Do you belong to something like that I don't think you do. In fact, I know you don't, because there's nothing like it. So my question would be, could you believe this? Is it really that implausible to you that Christ is Lord? Could you believe this? Could you unite yourself with the people of God? For Infinity Church, I have two questions for you. Number one, do you see your sin as a threat to the health of Infinity Church? It's not just a threat to your Christian walk. It's a threat to the very health and vitality of this body, this family. Do you see it that way? Do you see it as that big, that monumental, And my second question is, is the church as important to you as it is to Peter? Perhaps you're here, maybe this is your first time, or maybe you come in and out, maybe you only come a couple times a week, but you haven't really bought in, you haven't really committed. Why? Why? Or maybe you are here and you're committed and you're here every week, maybe you're a member or, sorry, maybe you're here every week, but you're not a member. You have yet to make that commitment to covenant with this body to say, I'm sticking with y'all, no matter what. Why? Why haven't you? Maybe you are a member, and you've covenanted with this body, but you've neglected to serve the body. Why? Why haven't you?
We are a people who have been chosen by God. That's to encourage us in the unbelieving world that we find ourselves in, the strange land that we find ourselves in. We are a people that have been chosen by God. May the saints take courage in their divine election. We have been chosen by God. The heart of God set upon us. It's true of us. We would be encouraged in that in the midst of a world that hates Christ. We would be encouraged by the fact that we've been redeemed from our sin. That we too once were part of the unbelieving world that hated Christ. That he has set us free from that. And may we take seriously the threat of our unrepentant sin to this local gathering, to this local body. Churches are destroyed by neglect of unrepentant sin. Not external persecution, unrepentant sin. And we take that seriously. And may we commit and covenant with this body. You, Infinity Church, if you haven't yet commit covenant with this body, it's not enough to just come every now and then. It's not enough to just even come every week and not serve. That is not how the New Testament authors view the church. It's not how we should. And we commit and covenant with this body. Infinity Church, it's been an honor. Thank you guys. Let's, let's pray. We close. Father in heaven, may we be a people who proclaim your excellencies. May we not forget our identity as your chosen, redeemed people. And may we never neglect to wage war against the sin which desires to destroy us. I pray that the preaching of your word this morning would convict, save, and sanctify your people. Amen.